Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the case of Jennifer Kessie, who went missing from Orlando, Florida in 2006. A few years ago, it seemed like there were practically no leads in this case, as if Jennifer just vanished into thin air. But after her family literally took her case into their own hands, it became very apparent that it was anything but cold. I got so many requests from you guys to cover Jennifer's case. I got messages on TikTok, Instagram, through the form on the website. There are so many of you that care about Jennifer that I was honestly pretty moved. And after looking into it, I knew that it was one of those cases that I wouldn't be able to get out of my head until I fully researched it and shared it with all of you, of course, in hopes that we can help Jennifer and her family. So this is the case of Jennifer Kessie. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Jennifer Joyce Kessie was born on May 20th, 1981, in Florida to her parents Drew and Joyce Kessie. She was their first child and only daughter. A few years later, the family would welcome their second and last child, Jennifer's brother, Logan Kessie. Before their kids were born, Drew and Joyce Kessie were actually held up at gunpoint in their home. So growing up, they really ingrained safety precautions into both of their kids. They would constantly discuss what to do in emergency situations and best practices for being safe. The Kessies do admit that they were a bit strict, but they were also very loving and supportive. Jennifer graduated from Vivian Gaither High School in Tampa, Florida with honors, and later graduated from the University of Central Florida in Orlando in 2003, also with honors. While in college, she studied finance, and she also had a thriving social life. She was a part of a sorority, but prided herself on her studies and was known as the mother hen of the group. But she also had a ton of fun. Logan would actually come up to the campus and attend parties with her. As both Jennifer and Logan became adults, they actually became best friends. And eventually, they just kind of merged their friend groups. So they saw each other constantly. 
When Jennifer graduated from UCF, she stayed in the Orlando area, and she eventually accepted a position as a financial analyst for Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company. Jennifer excelled in this position and got promoted three times in less than a year. In 2005, Jennifer met her boyfriend, Rob Allen. Rob was in town for a trade show with his roommate, and they decided to go out on the town afterwards. As luck would have it, he just so happened to go to the exact bar that Jennifer was at with some of her friends. They connected, and sparks flew immediately. The only issue was, Rob lived in Fort Lauderdale, about three hours away from Orlando. But they talked on the phone constantly and tried to see each other every single weekend. Jennifer's life appeared to be going really well at this point, and her future looked bright. She was 24 years old, doing well at work, she was in a happy relationship with her boyfriend Rob, and she just bought her first condo at a complex called Mosaic at Millennia. She moved in on Thanksgiving Day in 2005, exactly two months before she would go missing. One of the reasons that Jennifer picked this condo in particular was because it was in a gated community, and it had a guard at the entrance at all times. The location in general seemed very appealing as well. It was about 20 minutes away from work, and it was right across the street from Mall at Millennia. This mall was still pretty new at the time. It was built just three years before, in 2002. It was also huge, being over 1 million square feet in size. Overall, the mosaic at Millennia seemed like a very ideal place for 24-year-old Jennifer to live. Buying this condo was also especially exciting for Jennifer because she bought it with her own money. At this point, Jennifer's parents were still helping her pay for her car and cell phone, just like they did for her brother, Logan. So being able to buy a $210,000 condo in 2006 at the age of 24 was a huge accomplishment. Around this time, Mosaic and Millennia was remodeling all of the units. They were actually converting them from apartments to condos. Jennifer was the first person in the complex to close on one of these units. Because there was so much renovation happening, a lot of the units were empty. There were also new workers at the complex almost every single day. Some were employed directly by Mosaic at Millennia, but some were contractors, and some appeared to have been paid cash under the table, with no documentation through the complex at all. Jennifer would often see large groups of these workers completing projects around the complex. She told her parents, Rob, and her friends that although these workers never said anything to her, every time she'd walk by, they'd often just go silent and stare at her. This made Jennifer extremely uncomfortable, but since it didn't really escalate to anything verbal, she didn't tell any of the managers at the complex. But remember, Jennifer grew up with a safety-first mindset, so she did take precautions. Whenever the workers were in her unit, she typically kept the front door open. She'd stand in the doorway and she'd call someone while they were completing this work. This is just how Jennifer was wired. She was always extremely cautious and aware of her surroundings. She carried pepper spray on her keychain, and even if she was walking from a store to her car, she'd call someone on the phone just to be safe. She also appeared to be a little bit of a crime junkie. Jennifer and her mother Joyce really loved the show Law & Order. According to Joyce, they'd often discuss how they would get out of dangerous situations, like being kidnapped, locked in a trunk, or having your car stolen. 
Her father would often chime in, giving his advice as well. Jennifer was extremely successful and smart, but she was living alone downtown in a big city, and she wanted to be as vigilant as possible. But just like in college, this didn't mean that Jennifer didn't go out and have fun. On Wednesday, January 18th, 2006, Jennifer made the three-hour drive to her boyfriend Rob's house in Fort Lauderdale. The next morning, they flew to St. Croix with some friends for an extended weekend getaway. While she was gone, her brother Logan stayed at her condo along with his best friend, Travis. Jennifer and Rob were scheduled to fly back from St. Croix on Saturday, January 21st, but their flight was canceled, so they ended up getting back on the 22nd. Jennifer decides that instead of making the three-hour drive back home on Sunday, she'd rather just stay the night at Rob's house and go right to work on Monday morning. On Monday, January 23rd, Jennifer leaves Rob's house at about 6 a.m., and she gets to work at about 9 a.m. It's a pretty typical workday for Jennifer, and it ends with a meeting. After this meeting around 6 p.m., Jennifer walks to the parking lot with her boss. They say their goodbyes, and Jennifer appears to take her normal route home. This is confirmed by a toll booth along the way. When Jennifer gets home from work, she makes a ton of phone calls. She calls her parents and her brother Logan to tell them all about her trip, and they all report that she seemed perfectly fine and happy. Logan does inform her that his friend Travis left his cell phone at her condo on accident, so Jennifer ends up calling Travis and they discuss mailing his phone back to him. She planned on doing this the next day because her work had both UPS and FedEx shipping services. After making these arrangements with Travis, Jennifer calls her friend Lauren to talk about the trip and about Rob. Now, Lauren does say that Jennifer seemed like she was in a funky mood. Apparently, she was pretty sad that the vacation ended and that Rob was so far away. At 9.57pm, Jennifer calls Rob from her landline. Another confirmation that Jennifer was at home that night. Rob says that Jennifer was tired and laying in bed. He admits that they did have a bit of a fight about being so far away from each other. He says that she was frustrated, but it seemed like a typical argument. Rob also mentions that while they were on the phone, someone knocked on Jennifer's door, but she didn't answer it. I read in one report that Jennifer told Rob that it was possibly her upstairs neighbor, but this fact has never been confirmed as far as I could find. Eventually, their phone call ends, with Rob having no idea that this would be the last time he ever spoke to Jennifer. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials. And with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince too is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. 
Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash justice. The next morning puts us at Tuesday, January 24th. Rob is running late for work and he calls Jennifer. They usually talk to each other every morning before work. Rob told CNN, quote, Jennifer always woke up before me. She had to go to work before I did. She, every day, would either call me just to say good morning, have a great day, or just text me to wish me to, you know, have a great day, love you, that type of thing. And when I didn't receive it Tuesday morning, I thought it was odd, but I was running a little late for work. So I called her on the way into work and just got her voicemail. After a 9 a.m. meeting at work, Rob tries Jennifer again. No answer. Around 10.30 or 11 a.m., Rob calls Jennifer's work directly, and he's told that she hasn't arrived yet. When Jennifer finally misses a meeting at work, her employer becomes extremely concerned. Jennifer's father, Drew, was actually friends with the CFO at the company, so the CFO calls Drew directly to make sure that everything was okay. Drew tries to call Jennifer, but now the calls are going right to voicemail. Her mom tries calling her too, but again, it goes right to voicemail. This was instantly concerning for the Kessies. On top of it just being extremely odd that Jennifer didn't show up to work and no one could get a hold of her, Jennifer was also breaking a huge rule with her parents. Although they were happy to help both Logan and Jennifer pay for their cell phones and their cars, this offer came with a very strict stipulation. If they didn't answer their phone when their parents called, they would take away both their phones and their vehicles. When Jennifer's parents realized that she wasn't where she was supposed to be and they couldn't get a hold of her, they reacted immediately. Pretty soon, Jennifer's parents, Logan, and Logan's friend Travis were all in the car making the trip to Jennifer's condo. While driving, Drew calls Mosaic at Millennia to ask if one of their employees could enter Jennifer's condo to see if she was in there, and to make sure that everything was okay. The employee says that they absolutely can, he just needs to find a second person to go into the unit with him, per company policy. This takes about 5-10 to minutes. When the workers enter the condo, they are still on the phone with Drew Kessie, and they stay on the phone with him the entire time. They tell him that her condo was locked before they entered. No one was in the unit, and nothing looked disturbed. Then Drew asks if they can go to the parking lot and see if Jennifer's car was there, but it was gone too. The Kessies go from extremely concerned to outright panicked. Joyce begins calling Jennifer's friends, hospitals, and prisons, but no one's seen her. Finally, they call the Orlando Police Department to report her missing, but unfortunately, they don't take it very seriously. When the Kessies arrive at Jennifer's condo, they are convinced that Jennifer had been there that morning. Her mom says that her bed definitely looked slept in, the shower was still wet, and there was a wet towel on the counter along with her curling iron and all of her makeup. On top of that, her keys, purse, cell phone, iPod, and briefcase appeared to be the only items missing from her condo. All signs told them that Jennifer most likely got up and got ready for work like she did every weekday morning. Now, the Kessies wasted no time. By 4.30pm, her family and friends gathered to hold signs and hand out flyers around her complex and on the nearby street corners. 
Logan Kessie even begins knocking on every single door in the complex, asking residents if they've seen Jennifer. He also begins talking to many of the workers on site, and he says that a lot of them weren't cooperative, and he immediately becomes suspicious of them. Eventually, when Jennifer didn't return home that night, the police finally declared her missing. By this time, the Kessies and Jennifer's boyfriend Rob, along with 11 other people, were using Jennifer's condo as a command center of sorts. This was much to the dismay of the Orlando Police Department, who later chastised them for ruining the potential crime scene. In defense of the Kessies, maybe if the Orlando PD took this seriously from the start and told them not to go in her condo hours before when they initially reported her missing, this might have all been avoided. But the fact remains that Jennifer's condo was severely contaminated due to there being so many people in there. Ultimately, I wasn't able to find any information about DNA or evidence being recovered from that scene. Mosaic at Millennia also didn't have any security cameras on the property. After interviewing residents in the complex, no one reported hearing or seeing any type of struggle that morning either. It's truly as if Jennifer just vanished into thin air. The next day, Jennifer's friends and family began searching for her. At this point, the Orlando PD was still hesitant to launch a full investigation into what happened to Jennifer. This was in large part due to getting some faulty results when trying to ping Jennifer's cell phone. Initially, their report showed that Jennifer left her condo and went to a few places in the area. Between this and Rob saying that they fought the night before, the Orlando PD suspected that she was just angry and staying away. But somehow, they discovered that the information they got about her whereabouts was incorrect. They ran the data again and discovered that Jennifer appeared to be in her condo all night, as her family and Rob originally suspected. Although police were slow to help, Jennifer's disappearance almost immediately made the local news. Her photo and a photo of Jennifer's black Chevy Malibu were pretty much everywhere. This media coverage paid off almost instantly. By the morning of Thursday, January 26th, the police got a very good lead. A resident at Huntington-on-the-Green, an apartment complex just about a mile away from Mosaic at Millennia, called the police to say that they saw Jennifer's car. It was parked in the visitor parking lot at their complex. Within minutes, police officers arrive at the scene and confirm that it was indeed Jennifer's car. Instead of searching the car right then and there, the Orlando police decide to wait. They actually call Jennifer's boyfriend Rob so he can search the car with them. In a 48-hour special on Jennifer's case, Drew Kessie says that he believes that the police wanted Rob to be the person who opened that trunk in case Jennifer was inside of it. That way, they could gauge his reaction. Now, who knows if that's actually the case, but the fact that Drew Kessie thinks that could be a possibility was just super interesting to me. Unfortunately, when they search the car, they don't find much. Jennifer wasn't in the vehicle, there weren't any apparent signs of a struggle, and nothing appeared to have been stolen. Not even the pricey DVD player sitting in plain view in the back seat. The only things they do find are one latent print belonging to Jennifer, and one large boot print next to the gas pedal. This obviously did not belong to Jennifer. At this point, they do bring in a canine unit. The dogs track a scent from Jennifer's car back to her condo, but authorities can't say for sure if the dogs tracked Jennifer's scent or possibly someone else's scent. 
this wasn't an area that Jennifer was known to frequent, and the Orlando PD would often find stolen cars in this exact parking lot. After interviewing some of the residents at the complex, it appears that no one could tell exactly how long the car had been there. Fortunately, unlike Mosaic at Millennia, Huntington on the Green actually had two security cameras in the area. When investigators pulled the footage from these two cameras, they saw Jennifer's car entering the visitor parking lot. This was near the pool area at exactly 11.59 a.m. on the day she went missing. The person driving the vehicle pulls into a spot, backs out to straighten the car, reparks it, and sits in the car for 32 seconds. They then exit the car and walk past a wrought iron fence out of the complex in the direction of Jennifer's condo. This person was clearly not Jennifer. But this was huge. They literally have Jennifer's car and the person driving it on video. This should be a pretty open and shut case at this point. Surely, whoever this person on video was knows something about her disappearance or can at least point them in the direction of someone who does. But there's a huge problem. These security cameras didn't actually take seamless video. Instead, the system was designed to snap photos every two to three seconds. And as luck would have it, this person that was caught on camera walking by the fence was positioned perfectly for the fence to cover their face with each snap of the camera. Not once, but twice this person's face was covered by the posts in the video. And there were no fingerprints. Detectives theorized that whoever was in Jennifer's car probably spent those 32 seconds before getting out of the car, wiping it down to ensure that. This was extremely upsetting for her friends and family. I mean, what are the chances that this camera would miss this person's face literally by one second two times? The Orlando PD even teamed up with NASA to see if they could recover any images of this person's face. But there was nothing they could do. Fortunately, they were able to determine some information. They determined that the person in the video was most likely a male between 5 foot 3 and 5 foot 5 inches tall. They also had larger than average feet and were most likely wearing either boots or high top sneakers. They also believed that this person was wearing some type of work attire and could possibly be a painter. It also looks like their hair is a bit longer and tied back in a bun. I'll post a link to this video on voicesforjusticepodcast.com so you can see for yourself. After Jennifer's car was found, there was an even bigger push to find her. There were more dogs, horses, helicopters, and hundreds of volunteers searching for her. Billboards and posters of Jennifer were practically everywhere. While these searches ensued, the Orlando PD began investigating who could have taken or harmed Jennifer. Of course, they looked to her boyfriend, Rob, but his alibi of being home the night before and at work the next morning, nearly 200 miles away, completely checked out. He, along with Jennifer's family, were eventually completely cleared. They also looked at Jennifer's ex-boyfriend, Matt. He was actually at a bar nearby Jennifer's condo that night and he was apparently pretty intoxicated. He's never been officially cleared as far as I could find, but he also hasn't ever been named a person of interest or a suspect. The Orlando PD also look at all of these workers at Mosaic at Millennia, but they tell the family that there just isn't much there to confirm if any of them could have been involved. 
Jennifer's family was devastated but determined. Her brother Logan was actually supposed to move from Florida to California the week after Jennifer went missing, but he canceled the move so he could stay and help search for her. In May of 2007, the Orlando police released the video footage of the person driving Jennifer's car to the public. The police department was highly criticized by both Jennifer's family and the public for not releasing this earlier, but they said that they just didn't want to scare away whoever this person was. After this major release of information, the Kessie family held their own press conference. Drew Kessie said that he wanted to dispel some of the rumors surrounding his daughter's case. He stated that his daughter was not a runaway, she did not have any mental health issues, and she did not use drugs. He told the Orlando Sentinel, quote, Jennifer was abducted, and Jennifer was not the last person to drive her car. That correlates that person of interest becoming a suspect. He also announced that his family was offering a $250,000 reward. But just one hour after this press conference, Drew Kessie announced that Jennifer's employer, David Siegel, was now offering a $1 million reward to expire on July 4th. At this point, the Orlando PD had sifted through over 1,000 leads, some tips coming all the way from Australia. They also had four different teams of homicide and missing persons detectives independently review the case as well as conduct additional interviews. They polygraphed witnesses, they searched new construction sites in the area, but they told the family that there just wasn't much to go on. They had no idea why someone would take Jennifer and definitely no idea who did it. The July 4th deadline for the $1 million reward would come and go without anyone coming forward to claim it. As terrible as this entire situation is, one silver lining in all of this came in 2008. That's when Senate Bill 502 was passed by the Florida House. This would be known as the Jennifer Kessie and Tiffany Sessions Missing Persons Act. As a quick side note, Tiffany Sessions was a 20-year-old college student who went missing in Florida after going out for a run in 1989. Her case remains unsolved to this day. This new law adopted by Florida ensured that anyone under the age of 25 would be considered a missing person within two hours of a report being filed. It also made it so police had to ask the relatives of anyone missing for longer than 90 days to submit a DNA sample to be put in a national database. That same year, a man named David Byron Russ said that he had a written confession from Jennifer's killer. Russ was in prison at this time for the murder of Madeline Lenian. Madeline was 58 years old when Russ came into her home in Longwood and killed her. Russ pled guilty, telling the judge that he'd been on a cocaine binge. He added that he was a cold-blooded killer, and probably would have killed again had he not been caught. He even refused to allow his lawyers to present information that could help him avoid the death penalty. It seemed like this guy didn't have a lot to lose. Russ asked his lawyer to give the letter to the Kessies, but Russ wanted to meet with Drew Kessie in person. When Drew Kessie contacted the Orlando PD about this development, they said that they had no plans to meet with Russ. They said that they'd already been given this information and looked into it months ago. But this didn't stop Drew. He told the Orlando Sentinel, quote, If I'm willing to die for Jennifer, why not walk into a jail for her? 
Unfortunately, it appears that nothing came from this letter or this meeting. Just another dead end in Jennifer's investigation. It seems like the Orlando PD was getting tips, they just didn't go anywhere. In 2009, Detective Joel Wright was asked to take a fresh look at Jennifer's case. At this time, Wright decided to go back and interview a former housekeeper at Mosaic at Millennia. In this interview, he showed the woman the video of the man who parked Jennifer's car. And immediately, she said, I'm pretty sure I know exactly who that is. The clothing, the walk, the hairstyle. She was certain that the person on tape was a maintenance worker from Mosaic at Millennia named Chino. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When Detective Wright searched his database of tips for the name Chino, he discovered that they'd actually received a tip in the first week of their investigation about Chino. The Orlando PD could not confirm or deny that they ever followed up on this lead or ever spoke to the person who submitted it. So nearly three years later, Detective Wright follows up, and he interviews Chino. At this time, he was serving time in prison for statutory rape. He admits that he was in Jennifer's condo with another worker about a week before she went missing. He says that he believes that they were painting something, and everything appeared to be normal. Jennifer let them in the unit, and they began painting while she was getting ready for work. When she was done getting ready for work, they were still painting. So she left them in the condo and asked them to lock up behind themselves when they left. In this interview, Chino reiterates that he is not the person in the video. And to his credit, standing at 5'9", Chino is a bit taller than they estimate the person in the video is. He's also given a polygraph test, which he passes. The police say that ultimately, he was extremely cooperative, and his story appeared to check out with the man he said he was working with on that day too. But the Kessies found something extremely odd about all of this. No one got a call from Jennifer on the day that they were performing work in her condo. Like I mentioned earlier, Jennifer was raised to be extremely safety conscious, and she always called someone when there were workers in her condo. Despite voicing these concerns, it seems like the Orlando PD didn't investigate Chino or the other man in Jennifer's condo the week before she went missing any further. By 2010, Detective Wright was taken off the case. 2016 marked 10 years that Jennifer had been missing and the state of Florida legally declared her deceased. Drew Kessie attended the court date alone and extremely distraught. The Kessies knew it was unlikely, but they still held out hope that Jennifer might be alive out there somewhere. Despite there not being much movement in the case, the Orlando PD maintained that Jennifer's case was not cold. This was extremely concerning to the Kessie family. In multiple interviews, they reiterated that in Orlando, cold cases are allocated more resources than other cases. Resources that, in their mind, could make all of the difference in trying to find Jennifer. On the 12-year anniversary of Jennifer's disappearance, the Orlando PD held a press conference to announce their new efforts to help solve the case. Chief of the Orlando Police Department, John Mina, stood at the microphone in front of the Kessie family, 
other members of law enforcement, and a city bus newly wrapped with images of Jennifer, information about a $15,000 reward, and the now infamous picture of the person from the surveillance video. He ensured the public that they were doing everything they could to find Jennifer, and he says that they've generated over 160 new leads in the past five years. He announces that Detective Teresa Sprague was now assigned to Jennifer's case, and she would be working it exclusively. He also announces that they contracted 18 new digital billboards to display Jennifer's poster. During this announcement, you can see Logan Kessie behind him, shaking his head, clearly scoffing at these announcements. And then Drew Kessie walks to the microphone. Um, in the immortal words of Glenn Fry of the Eagles, there's a fine line between the American dream and the American nightmare. I think Jennifer Kessie has experienced both sides of that fine line, and unfortunately, we're on the, on the nightmare side of that right now. I don't know what to say or do after 12 years. We sit back and we say, well, I think we've done everything. How can we sit and touch someone's heart just enough to make the call? Maybe this will be it. I don't know. We've tried so many things. We've tried everything, rewards, pleading. I've begged I don't know how many years at this time of year and completely going on. But I think at this point, 12 years later, I'm going to ask for cooperation. Cooperation from this community that they have done nothing but give us cooperation. We need that continued cooperation. We need those continued tips to be called in. And in fact, if you've called a tip in in the last 12 years and you don't think it's been worked, call it in again, please. Please do that for us. Because maybe you feel it's important, maybe the people behind us didn't. Make it feel important again. Go right ahead and do it, they'll take it, believe me. And then we're asking for cooperation from our authorities. We have cooperated every step of the way for 12 years, trying to do whatever is asked of us, trying to get our loved one back, Jennifer. So now we're going to ask them for cooperation and maybe some of the things that we would like to do and we would like to see. And we hope they're open about it because they need to be open about it because we need to do anything possible to bring home Jennifer. And she's not alone. I have to say in closing, I'd like to read a list off the Orlando PD website for all those missing in Orlando. Because although we're here today for Jennifer, we are advocates for those who cannot speak for themselves. The missing, the abducted, the exploited, the trafficked, and the unidentified. They're all mixed in there together. And we want you to remember these people too today because they have to be found and brought home. And they are Tracy Ocasio, Yesenia Suarez, Michelle Parker, Trenton Duckett, Michelle Bell, Lakeisha Martinez, Jessica Vargas Beatriz, Jessica Ramirez, Jennifer Boone, Jacqueline Hernandez, Heaven Miller, Haley Cummins, Garcia Grandez, Fanny Narvarez, Emma Vaughn, 
Destre Reinhardt, Dennis Martin, Ashante Creighton, Amandeep Singh, Alexis Little, and someone who's been messing very long in the state of Florida, Tiffany Sessions. All these people need your help. And please give something to them if you can, as you've given to Jennifer. And again, we thank you so much, and we appreciate it. Thank you. I honestly could not love this statement from Drew Kessie any more. I thought he was extremely professional, well-spoken, and stood up for what he believed in. He called out the police in the most polite way possible, right in front of them. I think it was just so smart of him. I imagine that he's had plenty of conversations with the police behind the scenes, but to address some of these issues in front of the media evokes a new level of accountability that you just can't get in a private conversation with police. After this press conference, Logan Kessie told the Orlando Sentinel, quote, This is a joke to me. This is an absolute slap in the face. They would not have done anything if it wasn't for us getting our attorneys involved. This statement definitely foreshadows the Kessies' next move to find Jennifer. On December 10th, 2018, the Kessie family filed a lawsuit against the Orlando PD. They asked them to close Jennifer's case and give them all of the records. In a statement on the Kessie family GoFundMe page, they explain this move. They state that after nearly 13 long years, the Orlando PD, along with other state and federal agencies, have failed to find Jennifer. There is no named suspect, and there isn't a single solid lead. New Orlando Police Chief Orlando Rallone proposes that they give the investigators six more months to crack the case, and then they'll release the documents. But just a few months later, in March of 2019, the lawsuit was settled out of court. Basically, the deal was that the family would get the records, pay an administrative fee of $18,648.24, and the case would no longer be actively worked by the Orlando PD. Essentially, the Kessie family would take over Jennifer's case completely. In an interview with 48 Hours, Chief Rallone stated, quote, after the number of years we have spent trying to solve Jennifer's disappearance, I think it was time to honor the wishes of the family. The family wants closure. We want closure. We want to find the person responsible for her disappearance. I think it's a win-win for all. Now, I have feelings about this quote. We know that some families never get to see their loved one's records. Look at Jody LaCornu's sister, Jenny. She is still fighting with the Baltimore PD for her sister's records after decades. But this quote about it being a win-win for all just feels like they were happy to not work on the case anymore. Like, please explain to me how this is a win for the Orlando Police Department. They weren't able to solve the case. And when the Kessies got their hands on those records, it becomes very clear that the Orlando PD certainly did not work every lead to the best of their abilities. At this point, the Kessies build their own team led by private investigator Michael Toretta. The first thing he did was review the over 16,000 pages of documents and 67 hours of video and audio. He was stunned at what he found. Not only was there a seven-year gap in reporting, but it appears that there were several crucial leads from the first months of the investigation that were never followed up on, including one witness that says that she is 100% certain that 
that she saw Jennifer's car at Mosaic at Millennia on the day she went missing. This witness has spoken to a few different news outlets about what she saw, but she wishes to remain anonymous. If you want to hear it straight from her, I definitely recommend listening to episode 5 of the podcast House of Broken Dreams, the Jennifer Kessie story. The host, Christina Corbin, conducted some really great interviews on the podcast, and it's also just a really great resource if you want to dive even deeper into Jennifer's story. But basically, this witness said that between 7 and 7.30 in the morning on the day that Jennifer went missing, she was driving her husband to his first radiation appointment. She stopped at a stop sign at the intersection of Moxie Boulevard and Conroy Road. There, she saw a black Chevy Malibu near the exit at Mosaic at Millennia. What caught her attention was that the car was driving pretty erratically. In her words, it looked like someone was trying to take control of the steering wheel. She did pause for a moment, but being extremely nervous about missing her husband's first radiation appointment, she made a right and continued towards the doctor's office. Unfortunately, she doesn't know which way the car went, and she wasn't able to provide a description of the people inside of the car. The next day, she saw Jennifer's car on the news and called the police to tell them that she had information about the case. A few days later, they did send an officer out to get a statement, but they never followed up. When Drew Kessie heard this, it hit him hard. He was pretty sure he knew exactly what Jennifer was doing. In all of their talks about being safe and what to do in different dangerous scenarios, Drew Kessie told Jennifer that if someone ever tried to take her car by force, the situation would not end well if that person got her to a secondary location. He told her that should this ever happen, she needed to get out of the car or draw attention to herself in any way possible, even if that included crashing the vehicle. Believe it or not, this would not be the only revelation found in those records related to Jennifer's car. In those 16,000-plus pages of documents were photos of Jennifer's car that the Kessies had never seen before. Upon further inspection of those photos, it appears that unlike the Orlando PD's first statement, there were definitely signs of a struggle on her car. This comes from the hood of the vehicle. Drew Kessie told the podcast House of Broken Dreams, the Jennifer Kessie story, quote, it looked like someone was thrown down on the top of the hood, arms spread out and then dragged back, almost like off the hood, to the point where you can almost see fingers scribbling down the hood. End quote. Unfortunately, even the MVAC samples of the car were inconclusive, so we still don't have any suspect DNA to help Jennifer's case. In addition to investigating old leads, on November 8, 2019, P.I. Michael Toretta gets a brand new one, and this would spark another search for Jennifer Kessie. A woman calls Toretta and says that around the time that Jennifer went missing, she was staying with a friend at Fisher Lake in Orange County. This is about 20 minutes from Jennifer's condo. She says that she was out in the yard overlooking the lake, and suddenly she saw a man in a dark pickup truck back up to the lake. This man gets out of his truck, looks around, and walks to the bed. He then pulls out a piece of rolled-up carpet that she says is about six to eight feet long. He puts it over his shoulder, he dumps it in the lake, and he watches it sink. Toretta and the Kessies are all over this lead. They immediately bring in cadaver dogs, and almost immediately, two of them hit. The police bring in four dogs of their own and a dive team, but they come up with nothing. 
no hit from the dogs, no carpet in the lake, and no Jennifer. Frustrated, Toretta goes back out with his dogs, he brings radar, and he brings a dive team to search the lake again. But he doesn't find anything. He then shifts his focus from the lake to the person who may or may not have disposed of Jennifer's body there. The witness described the man that she saw as white and tall with dark blonde or possibly brown hair. She also said that the truck was big and he looked like he could have been a construction worker. This led Michael Toretta right back to Mosaic at Millennia and all of those workers on the property when Jennifer went missing. Through a series of interviews and by studying the case file, he discovers some pretty disturbing things. The security gate at the entrance was absolutely not attended at all times, and the logs of who was coming and going were mostly incomplete. There was also no real way for the residents to submit a formal work order. They basically just told management or one of the workers what they needed. So there was little paper trail to confirm exactly which worker was in which unit and when. On top of this, like I mentioned earlier, not only did Mosaic at Millennia not have accurate records for every worker on the property, they were also allowing many of them to stay in the empty units. And they didn't track that either. Toretta concluded that up to 10 workers were living in the empty unit directly across from Jennifer's condo at the time that she went missing. And on the exact day she went missing, they were scheduled to install new carpet in that unit. Michael Toretta believes that it is entirely possible that on the morning of January 24th, 2006, Jennifer Kessie woke up, took a shower, got ready for work as usual, walked out of her front door, locked it behind her, and was grabbed immediately afterwards by one of these workers. Logan Kessie told Dateline, quote, I personally have never really wavered on what I think happened, but of course the mind can be pulled into so many different directions because we have nothing concrete. We don't know anything, but I have this gut feeling that one of those workers knows something. In Toretta's interviews with other residents at Mosaic at Millennia, he spoke with several women who reported issues with the workers on site. Some of these issues were similar to Jennifer's. Many women reported just feeling uneasy with the workers and the way that they would stare. Others reported more nefarious things, like workers entering their homes without permission and going through their belongings. But one woman's story was absolutely terrifying. A woman named Tammy came forward and said that while she was living at the complex, she was certain that someone was entering her home without permission. She says one day it would be a soda missing from the fridge, another day there were footprints in her closet, then her kitchen sink was wet when she got home. But the final straw for her was when she found drops of urine on her toilet seat that were absolutely not from her. She told management that she was changing her alarm code and she didn't want anyone in her unit without permission ever again. The next day, she found a cigarette butt in one of her plants on her patio, but she tried not to panic. Her unit was on the first level, and her patio wasn't fenced in, so it really could have been anyone. But the next day, she found an entire unsmoked cigarette on her windowsill. And then, she sees a man in the corner of her patio pleasuring himself. When he realized that he'd been caught, he runs to a white van and drives away. What really scared Tammy about this wasn't only the man pleasuring himself on her patio, but she says that when the man ran to the white van, he didn't even turn it on. 
it was already running, ready to go. To this day, she is certain that she was being stalked by a worker of the complex who intended on kidnapping her. Tammy did call 911, but they were never able to find the man or the van. She ended up paying thousands of dollars to break her lease and get out of there. In these interviews, Toretta also asked the resident specifically about the worker, Chino. The one that the housekeeper told police way back in 2009 was the person in the surveillance video. One woman who did not want to be identified said that she did know Chino, and he would approach her late at night in the parking lot and make her feel uncomfortable. Another woman who moved into the complex just a few weeks after Jennifer went missing said that she loved Chino. He was in her unit all the time, and she was never really suspicious of him. Until, one day, about nine months after Jennifer went missing, Chino apparently moved out of the complex overnight with no explanation. She said that she did call the crime line to report this, but no one followed up. The last witness I want to discuss lived in the complex from 2003 to 2007, so before and after Jennifer went missing. She was a college student when she moved into the complex, and she worked as a bartender at night, so she was usually up pretty late. She never knew Jennifer, but she lived in the building next to hers. When she moved in, she said that the place was really nice. She split an apartment with two roommates so they could enjoy the downtown night scene. Pretty soon after moving in, she met Chino. She said that she did have a weird feeling about him at first, but figured that she was just being paranoid. Over time, the two actually got pretty close. Chino seemed to always be up when she was getting home from work around 3 to 4 a.m., and he often just wanted to chat. Then he started swinging by her apartment. He'd ask for a DVD, a book recommendation, and eventually he started dropping by just to see how she was doing. He apparently also talked a lot about fighting with his girlfriend who lived in the complex, though this witness says that she never saw her. At some point, one of her roommates had some weird interactions with Chino. Shortly after this, the roommate started seeing someone with a very professional-looking camera taking pictures of her throughout the complex. One day they'd be in the hallway, another day they'd be in an empty unit or on the stairs. It got so bad that just to walk her dog, this roommate would bring her boyfriend and he'd bring his gun. Now, my first thought when I saw this statement was maybe it was just a photographer taking pictures of the complex, but this roommate says that it only happened super late at night. During the hours, they'd always see Chino. Ultimately, this witness tells Toretta that the moment she saw that surveillance video, she knew it was Chino. The last time Chino was interviewed was in 2009, so about a decade earlier. It wasn't until the year 2020 that Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours went out to Chino's house, knocked on his door, and asked him some questions. Chino answers the door shirtless, and you can hear a woman in the back. Chino says that he's innocent. He turns to the woman and says, quote, Mi amor, it's fine. I have nothing to hide. He tells Peter Van Sant that Jennifer was a beautiful person, and if he knew anything about her, he would tell her family. He even agrees to speak with Toretta, and a few weeks later, he makes good on that promise. I wasn't able to find the details about that particular conversation, but like I mentioned earlier, both Toretta and Logan Kessie believe that if not Chino, one of the workers at Mosaic at Millennia at the very least knows more than what they're saying. That's pretty much where Jennifer's case sits today, at least as far as they are sharing with the public. The podcast dedicated to Jennifer that I mentioned earlier, House of Broken Dreams, the Jennifer Kessie story, 
was released at the end of 2020. According to Drew Kessie, this podcast sparked so many new leads that his family has hired three new investigators to work them all. They say that it's one of the best pieces of media ever done on Jennifer's story, and that it's given them a lot of hope. Which brings me right to our call to action. There's actually a few things you can do to help Jennifer and her family. First and foremost, please share her picture and her story. You can also support her family by liking their Facebook page, Find Jennifer Kessie, or by donating to their GoFundMe. This is for the ever-growing cost of Jennifer's case. Drew Kessie stated that the Orlando PD has spent millions of dollars looking for Jennifer, and his family has spent close to three-quarters of a million dollars. If you aren't able to donate to their GoFundMe, please don't feel bad, but please consider sharing it. I want to end this episode with a statement from the Kessie family posted to that GoFundMe page. This is from July 12th, 2021, so just about two weeks before this episode airs. It states, We the Kessie family would like to bring you up to date on our efforts to bring Jennifer home. Since our last update in January, we have been extremely active doing the hard, slow work of combing through all pertinent leads as more come into us. We have been able to close many of them out, but as we do, more avenues of interest open up for us to investigate, which is good. We were able to return to areas of interest to search and clear in hopes of finding Jennifer or any evidence pertaining to her case. These areas include lakes that we've been interested in. We can share with you that they were completely searched by Orange County, Florida dive teams with no positive results. Unfortunately, we have not even scratched the surface of work we need to do, but our team is working hard to methodically examine our priorities. Due to the complexity of Jennifer's case, we can't share anything else at this time, other than we are moving forward in a positive, purposeful direction, and we feel we will ultimately get the answers we need to find Jennifer. We thank you for your continued support of our efforts and this campaign. Together, we will bring Jennifer home. Thank you for believing in our challenge. And as a community and country, we can find our missing loved ones together. For the public holds the answers and ability to find them all. Jennifer is not alone. May peace be with you, the Kessie family. Like so many of the cases I discuss on this show, we are left with a lot of questions. But even after 15 years, it sounds to me like this investigation into what happened to Jennifer Kessie is only getting started. Jennifer Kessie is a white female and approximately 5 foot 7 inches tall with green eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she weighed 130 pounds and her hair was sandy blonde. It could be darker now. Jennifer also has a green shamrock tattoo on her left buttock. As of recording this episode, Jennifer would now be 40 years old. If you have any information about Jennifer Kessie, please contact her family through the Find Jennifer Kessie Facebook page or the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program Unit at 800-634-4097. As always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. 
For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice. 